Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, an opportunity for me to ramble about whiskey or something for a few minutes. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on uh, any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll try to get that taken care of. You can also generally find video versions of this podcast on YouTube. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the exact same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us this afternoon, this evening, whenever you happen to be watching this. Um, today, I have Lindsay joining me from Barrel, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce your last name because I'm going to get it wrong. I know that. Uh, I'll give you an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself and, and, and let us know who you are. Perfect. Uh, my name is Lindsay Gulix. I am the Northeast Regional Manager for Barrel Craft Spirits. I live in New Jersey, but I cover Maine down to New Jersey for the company. All right. So you work for um, Barrel Craft Spirits or Barrel Bourbon or, you know, they've got a host of, of, of different things. How did you specifically come to Barrel? And, uh, you know, I sort of know the answer to this because I've done some research already, but I want to at least lay down the groundwork of how you end up here. Awesome. You pulled up my LinkedIn profile. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I came uh, to Barrel through the on-premise route. So I worked in restaurants for about probably a decade um, in New York. So I started as like a server at La Conde Verde, and then I worked my way up uh, to like a sommelier, bartender. I've had a beverage manager, wine director roles before. And then when 2020 happened and COVID happened, I kind of shifted. I was on a I was unemployed for a few months, and then I started working at a restaurant near my apartment in Brooklyn in Prospect Heights called Lalu. It was a wine bar. Um, I worked there and did various roles there, and it was when we they shut down the streets. So Vanderbilt Ave was like all shut down, and we had all the outdoor dining tables. It was a very interesting time to work in the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone was wearing masks. Uh, it was pretty fun. Uh, and scary at the same time. But Will Shragus, who it was the chief innovation officer and chief sales officer of Barrel, uh, who's the national sales director at that time, he came in to eat at Lalu. And we have been friends from the industry. We were both in wine tasting classes together when I was studying to be a certified SOM. And he was like, oh, you're back in town. You're back. Because I was living back with my parents for a few months. And so he was like, oh, do you want to come over for dinner? We'll get pizzas. We'll open all the windows. Like, I want to taste you on some whiskey. And if you could write tasting notes for me. So, like, I went and I, like, taste blind tasted a bunch of different barrel stuff. And at first I was like, holy hell, these are really strong. But I tasted, like, four different ones against each other. We kind of filled out these tasting mats together. And I was like, wow, well, these are really good and interesting whiskeys. And at that time, Dovetail had just came out. It was the blend of Tennessee and Indiana whiskey that was finished in Dunn Vineyards, Cabernet Barrels, Blackshot Molasses Rum, and Port. Uh, so I was super excited about that whiskey when he was like showing that to me there. And we just like kind of went through that. He was talking about like that they needed more help. They were like coming out. It was a time when whiskey was booming because everyone was home. And mm -hmm. The next day, he calls me and is like, hey, do you want to apply for a job at Barrel? We need someone to cover, help cover New York and New Jersey. And so at that time, I was like, I don't really know much about whiskey. I mean, I know enough about whiskey. I took spirits classes. I've worked in bars before. I've ordered beverages for bars before. But he was like, listen, all you, like, you'll learn it. 
it'll be a new adventure for you. Just interview. And like, so I went through like four different interviews. I interviewed with human resources with Joe Beatrice, the founder. And then I like have to do a presentation and like present different items in the barrel portfolio to the whole sales team or like the whole, not even just the sales team. It was like the blending team was on there. The accounting team was on there. Barrel was very small when I started in 2020. Um, so it was very intimidating. I felt myself like sweating in my chair while I was like presenting, but it, I guess it went well because I joined the team and I actually really love working on this side of the industry. I think going from wine to specifically barrel uh, really benefits me because mm -hmm. and everyone that I sell to, because I come with a like sommelier palette so I can taste and talk about spirits in a different way than I think. Yeah. Which I, th I think is a, is a thing that's probably missing in a lot of folks that are doing barrel finishes is being able to talk to the talk to and about the, the source spirit that was in the barrel to begin with. Right. Um, you know, we, everybody, a lot of people are familiar with sherry or port, but when you get into some of the more exotic stuff, it's like, you know, that's always been a thing for me is like, if I'm going to taste the finished product, I would like to also taste the corollary spirit, but, um, I don't know where I can find Tokai, um, ever. Right. Like that's, that's, I'm, I'm in rural Western Kentucky. It's not an option, but having someone that can kind of sell that way is beneficial. And it sounds like you had an audition for an interview and then the interview became, you had to pitch them their product back to them. That's, yeah. that's that is absolutely terrifying. It's so terrifying. Right. Like, cause like you're, you're talking to the people who made it about the thing that they made. Yes. But I listen to a lot of podcasts. So I have mm -hmm. a deep appreciation for podcasts at this point because that helped me get my job at Barrel. Listen to yeah. Joe and Trip and Will talk about the products for like many days. I was like in my car listening. I would be like before the interviews listening. So I got a bunch of talking points from podcasts. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that is a really good resource. And, you know, sort of pat ourselves on the back. Um, mine probably isn't as much uh, about that because I don't always get into, I get into the more of the, let's talk about who the people are, um, than anything else. So barrel craft spirits and, and you've, you've kind of come into this, we've talked a little bit about it. They do a lot of blending and, uh, one phrase that I really like that you guys have started to, to, to reclaim or maybe claim here in North America, the United States specifically is independent bottler, you know, independent bottler and blender, which blending Historically has had sort of a negative connotation in the United States um, and independent bottler is a more appropriate way to frame what you guys do specifically. Um, but it's, you know, widely accepted in, in European marketplaces, just not so much here because as soon as you start talking about sourcing, then everybody's like, oh, they're, they're not actually making anything. But this is not really the case. But what's the maybe the ethos of barrel craft spirits if you were to kind of distill it down? Sure. Um, I also like to like always use the metaphor like a painter. You... Mm -hmm. As a painter, you're not making your own paint, like you're not making those things, but you're creating beautiful art that can warrant prices. You trade the art like there's a whole marketplace for that. I think that's what we're doing with with barrel. It's like we are buying ingredients. We're sourcing barrels. There's a lot of distillate that is out there that is already made that is I like to say that is unloved. And we are adopting those barrels and giving them a new life in mm -hmm. blends and it might, these barrels might be unbalanced, like as we get them. But if we take a portion of that and blend it into a blend, it balances another unbalanced barrel. Um, things are greater than the sum of their parts in barrel. And that's something that we like to always mention. 
um, when we talk about what we do at Barrel. Things are, we source whiskey and other spirits from about 72 suppliers from around the world at this point. So um, we source from Canada, we source from like some European markets like Poland for some rise that we've done before. And with our Infinite Barrel project that we did, we sourced Irish whiskey. So there's a lot of things that we source from all over the place and a lot of different finishing casts that we do as well. So there's a lot of room for innovation in art. I yeah, think. and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and I think I know the answer to this, but do you think at least maybe in, in your region, but in, in the North American marketplace do you think we're warming to the ideas of both finishing blending and um independent bottler concepts do you, th do you think that we're that's that's why you're seeing the success in barrel i hope that as a as a species human beings are warming to kind of changing their perspectives on things i think for me i've changed my perspective because i came from the wine industry where i'm still very much focused on like where things are grown, how they are growing it, how they like, are they farming organically? And barrel is interesting to come into because we don't know where the grains are grown. Like that is so far, we get the barrels of distillate like so far along in that process, but we can still create something that is like a beautiful expression of flavor and personality on that. That is almost irrelevant at this point. So my whole perception changed. And I think that because people were home for so long and maybe like doing research and like studying things. I think their perception has changed. Uh, but I do think that we want more transparency in like what we're getting. And sometimes with source barrels or like independent ballers, you're not getting transparency. But barrel is definitely focused on kind of shifting to a more transparent model. We were always pretty transparent. But if you notice the back of the rye through four labels, which we're going to talk about, and every bourbon batch moving forward and all of our releases, uh, we are including a derived mash bill on the back, talking mm -hmm. about how we created the blend right on the back label of the bottle, where we didn't have that before. It was like batch 34, and you'd have to go on the website to kind of see like what was in the blend and what the flavor profile was. But now we are including that on the back label so that we can like share what the components are, why mm -hmm. we're including these these things in the blend, we're really blending for flavor profile in all of our different blends. We want it to be different. Um, everyone's palate is different. I know that because like I served a ton of people in restaurants and everyone likes different things. Like, yes, we think that Americans want something like sugary and rich and sweet, mm -hmm. but that's not the case. Everyone's all over the board with that. And I think that at Barrel, we come out with so many different releases, but there is something for everyone. And with our bourbons too. I used to think like, I know this is probably not right to say because I work for a bourbon company, but I used to think bourbon was kind of boring. Like as someone that like bought liquor and wine for a bar, I'm like, oh, bourbon, whatever. But right. there's so much nuance to all of our barrel releases. It's really interesting to pull out different flavors. Uh, I'm a big rye girl. I think the rye batch four is exceptional. I love all of our rye blends. We actually at Barrel, we've had a lot of success with rye. I think more than the normal market would see. But with Seagrass, uh, it was number two whiskey of the year in 2001. Fred Minnick voted at that. And it's one of my favorite releases that we've ever done. Uh, but really esoteric finishes like Agricole Rum, Apricot Brandy, and Madeira. Like that's so weird to do. And we've seen a lot of other companies kind of be inspired by what we do and kind of replicate different finishing. You know, and and, and you touched on it and, and Seagrass 
there, there's been a series of bottles that you guys have put out that, you know, if I look at, you know, like the favorite things that I've had in the year, um, almost every year there's another new offering, which, uh, you know, ha- have been considered either evergreen or not evergreen that kind of come from you guys. And I, I'm not going to lie, like seagrass was at the top of, of my list. I think that was, was that in 2020 or 2021? It was um, in 2021. 2021. And then in, in last year, I started getting worried until towards the end of the year. And then you guys dropped Vantage out. And immediately I was like, all right, here we go. This is the thing. This is the one that that, that came out. Because um, was our media in 2020 or was it in 2021 as well? I think our media was in the fall of 2020. Yeah. So, that's what, so you had our media, you had Seagrass, and then you had um, Vantage. And all three of those are amazing. And if you go back far enough, you get Dovetail, which is also fantastic right see they're all over here on this this shelf for me um but the 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 project of you know saying hey we're gonna go out and blend all of these things uh seagrass specifically right so you guys have a rye blended rye whiskey or i'm sorry a finished rye whiskey that every single person was like, this is the thing I want to drink on the beach. Right. Like that's, and and I don't know if it's just like super clever branding and the color scheme and like it clicks in people's brains, but the flavor profile, you know, normally for me, a rye whiskey is going to be a fall, winter, early spring for me. Right. Like that's where I, you know, I want something that's got a little more spice, a little more flavor. But as soon as that hit, everybody's like, this is a great summer drink. And I'm like, you took rye and turned it here for like all of the whiskey bros who are like, you know, bourbon in the summer and rye in the winter. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because seagrass, I do a lot of in-store tastings and um, consumer activation events where I can taste people on seagrass that normally don't drink whiskey that will Mm -hmm. drink tequila or gin or cognac and they taste seagrass and they're like, holy crap, I really like this. And I think that seagrass is very versatile where it can be put into like rum based cocktails, like daiquiris or Mai Tais. Like we've done a seagrass Mai Tai that for larger uh, activation events, like that's our cocktail that we do. And it's always a hit, Um, but it is fantastic to cocktail with. I have the most uh, success in on-premise with seagrass. It's just an interesting spirit. I don't know if Mm -hmm. I would even blind it as like a rye whiskey. It's just. No, I I wouldn't. I don't, I don't know many that would. And I think anybody who says they would is either lying or just really has a really amazing palate and they're able to, Oh yeah, no, this is definitely rye in here. Um, it's funny because we've had so many people ask for single barrels of seagrass, which is like impossible mm-hmm. because we're like finishing in three different casts. It's right. a blend of, of all these different whiskeys that we actually launched a private release program, which kind of functions as a single barrel program where stores mm-hmm. and groups can do a pick where we have private release rye. That's a blend of Indiana and Canadian rye that's finished in one finishing cask. So like there's some esoteric ones like the Tokai and the Madeira finishes, but then there's also like the Sherry finishes, the Port mm-hmm. finishes, but there's like a bunch, like 20 something different finishes that we do for the rye. So if you want a single barrel of seagrass, there's an option for you. That's not exactly seagrass, but very similar in the makeup. Right. We well, might be able to get a single barrel finish of each one of those things and then blend it together on your own. Later on, you've created your own seagrass maybe. Yeah. Um, and, and that brings a really interesting question at least for me um so you guys create some really really unique brilliance right like that's that's one of the things like you put a blend together and you do your bottling of it and it's fantastic does this do these ideas start from a place or do you look at your inventory and just start like testing hypothesis like or is it like hey we want to create like did seagrass start out as an idea and you had to figure out how to get there or did you just 
come about from testing? Sure. So there's a lot of questions layered in there. I'll start with the seagrass thing first, and then we'll talk about like some of their, I, how they blend. But seagrass was created with the idea of like creating something like rye for that was that people wanted to drink during warmer weather or like all of our whiskeys that we release uh, besides a new one that's coming out is going, they're all going to be cash strength. So seagrass is 120 ish. It's usually 118 to like 121 proof. That's not something that you just want to like sit and drink in the summertime in the heat in the pool. Right. But it, we wanted it to be super flavorful with like tropical notes, like floral notes, some salty notes. We wanted it to be bright. We wanted it to have acid. Um, and they had done some private release whiskeys. Like we've done finishing before and other things like Armida was finished. Uptel was finished. We had a whole series of private release whiskeys. So they were experimenting with different like uh, fortified wine based finishes or, spirit finishes, um, totally different finishing. So they liked what, I guess it's kind of started with like, they liked the component finishes of certain different whiskeys and they're like, all right, well, these think, I think these can take well with rye, uh, but they had the idea of what they wanted it to taste like before the blend was actually created. I think they actually had the name before the blend was actually created with seagrass, uh, Joe and Will Shragas, who was our chief innovation officer at barrel at the time, they were both like I think one was in Cape Cod, one was on Plum Island and they were on the phone talking and they kind of saw like these, like this grass, like blowing in the wind by mm -hmm. the shore. And so that's kind of how they developed like what they wanted seagrass to taste like. So it always gets formulated by like this idea of flavor and like where you're going to get the flavor from. And then they experiment on a smaller scale on how to get to that flavor profile. And then they'll start blending in the blending uh, room or the blending facility. There are three people on our blending team. We have Joe Beatrice, who's the founder of the company, and uh, Trip Stimson, who is our chief whiskey scientist, and then Nick Christensen, who is our manager of the blending operations and like the single barrel manager. But totally different palettes on each of them. Uh, Nick is a has like a Psalms palette. She worked in restaurants before too. Trip worked for Brown Foreman. Uh, he was a whiskey scientist there studying yeast strains specifically. So he has the science background. And then Joe Beatrice is our founder, kind of drives where the kind of direction of the company is going. But really, their palettes are developed now. I mean, we've been around for 10 years. We just released the 10-year uh, anniversary bourbon. So it's we've gotten a, we have a lot of barrels now. We kind of have our whole flow going at this point. But three totally different people kind of like kind of uh, – that are tasting everything before it's going in. Nice. Um, so, and, and you said you've got potentially, um, you say 72 different potential finishes. Is that the number that I heard you say? I think there's like about 20 something. Okay, 20 something, sorry. Uh, 72 suppliers. That's the, I wrote yeah. 72 down for something else. You got 20 something. Yeah, there it is. That number may have changed. I've been using that number for a bit now, so it mm -hmm. might be more, it might, less but we do work with about 20 something different finishes we tried out some stuff like uh single vineyard barolo finishes at one point mm -hmm. we did like a uh, project on that some different like a brooklyn amaro we did something with saint agressus at one point so there are options for like different finishing that normally you wouldn't see in the market that come out for like a one-time release mm -hmm. yeah and i guess uh, you know cause i start thinking about this from a product perspective right so you've got you know, Joe Tripp and they're, they're putting together these ideas, this, this group of people, you know, like this idea, like seagrass specifically. Um, how, 
how do you track how you think, or, or maybe you guys already know this because you've tasted the outcome of finishing uh, bourbon in a particular cask and a rye in a particular cask, and you sort of know what flavor it's going to impart. Like, is that how it works, or is it like you just sort of like, is there how much guesswork is involved in this? I, I feel like not much, but. Well, I mean, you learn you're the most from the mistakes that you make, right? right? In my life. So I'm sure there was a lot of mistakes that they made at the beginning with like t the trial and error. I mm -hmm. think at this point, though, that this has been a few years that are that are going on, there's not as many misses anymore. But I'm sure that there were misses at the beginning. I wish I was in the blending rooms with them to, to have more of an insight into, into what was going on. But I'm sure there's been barrels that have been dumped. Yeah, I mean, it would, either that or you bury them in a giant blend, but that's the only opportunity you've got. And that's where the, the blend kind of comes into play. Um, you know, like there's 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 new finishes that regularly hit the market, you know, all the time. Um, do you guys kind of keep an eye on what's happening there or are you just you're sort of ignoring the market and finding them yourselves? A little bit of both, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so we a lot of us come from like the restaurant industry or like the the distributor side and we kind of see what's been going on and we're like aware of the market trends. Uh, we are launching, I think we just launched in September, actually a cask finish series. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to, that's going to be something that we come out with. There's going to be two releases a year for the inaugural set. We are releasing two different cask finish series releases on um, this fall and they're all bourbons that are finished. So instead of just whiskey or rye that we're doing finishing with, we're finishing them um, in different forms of different casts to try, to try to do different finishing every year. But so this year we are finishing the first one in Amber on a cask, which you mm -hmm. see a lot in the market, something that's like trendy that's happening. And then the second one is something different. So we're doing them in a tale of two islands cask, a tale of two islands, which is no one really knows what that is. So where Amberana is like this big buzzword in right. bourbon, a tale of two islands is something completely different. They're both fantastic. Tale of Two Islands is a rum that we made, I think, in 2017. It was mm -hmm. a small amount of rum. I think Joe, I think Joe had a, an offer to buy some really cool single barrels of Jamaican rum. They were like, I think, nine to 14 year pot still rum. And he blended the rum and then finished it in a, a single malt scotch cask. So you have like that peat and that rum. And that was a release. It was a rum release from barrel. Uh, we have those barrels and we really wanted to do something with the tale of two islands rum. We didn't want really want to release another rum. We were kind of like debating with that uh, this year. We started working on that project and then we put bourbon in those barrels, like a blend of, I think it's Indiana, Kentucky and Maryland bourbon that are going into those barrels. But I have to double check that. Uh, I don't have that sheet in front of me. I don't think there's any Kentucky. I think it's just Indiana Mayor. I'm looking at the back yeah, of the world. Really. <laughs> I have I have a, a a sample of it. You have a sample um, of it? Yeah, I have a sample of it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Did you taste it yet? Yeah, so I did. I absolutely did. And it um it 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 it, it smelled to me like so it, this is one of the best, most interesting. I don't know. Best is, is a terrible word because it's so subjective. It's one of the most interesting things that I've smelled in a while. Um, it reminded me of, of like grilled summer fruits. Right? There's certain fruits that I associate with summer and that's, you know, that's peaches and that's, it's not apples. It's not um, pineapple. Pineapple I associate with, which is weird, but I associate with winter because it's in season where it's grown during the wintertime, right? But whenever I tasted it, it transitioned to this like smoky, dark flavor that 
and dark is the only word I can use. And it's not like a dark fruit, just dark, like dark, dark. And I can, I can see the, the scotch influences in it. What I'm excited about is I have a friend that may still have some of the rum that went into the original barrels and he's going to send me a sample. And I want to put these beside each other and say, okay, here's the, the rum barrel that was finished. Right. And then now here's this other, um, bourbon, but it is, this is one that I'm going to probably like put on the back of my shelf somewhere where I don't, so I can like surprise myself every six months when I start looking at like, Oh, Hey, I still have this thing and drink a little bit and hide it again. Yeah. And the thing about those, the cast finish series is that they're truly allocated. We're only making mm-hmm. about 2000 cases of each of those releases. Uh, the one will release like starting in 2024, one will release in the spring and one will release in the fall. So they will be like kind of uh, every year you'll get two different ones that will be yeah. out instead of just like the dovetail seagrass advantage that are all blended to be consistent every time. So those will always be readily in the, available in the market, but the, that cast finish series, if you find them on the shelves, you should definitely pick one up because they're mm-hmm. great. And especially the Amberana, I really loved the Amberana finish too, because that I've had some Amberana finishes that are kind of just really sweet, like in a way it's like very cloying. They can beat you over the head. It is like Amberana can be something that just absolutely beats you over the head and flavor, at least for me. And like the first one I ever had, it was brand new to me. It's like, Oh my goodness, this is like something that's really, really interesting. And I've had a few since then and they're all similar noted. Uh, and, that, and that was the concern whenever I got into this one. And, you know, cause normally I associate these with like gingerbread cookies or yeah. Christmas time, but this one, the y'all's version pulls backwards into the fall a little bit for me. And it reminds me of like a, um, a pumpkin roll, like where they yeah. do like the pumpkin cake and they do ginger in the buttercream and the, and the cream cheese frosting. Cause it's got the creaminess. It's got all these things. Everything goes to food for me because uh, that that's a thing that I can, relate it to it's always a food memory um but it's not like the average pumpkin roll that you get at like a potluck it's one that somebody who like pays attention to food and might be a bit of a gourmand would make right that's what it comes across to me and it's not which is not overly like pumpkin's not overly sweet and cream cheese is not overly sweet and it comes up short of the overly sweet oh that's delicious cream cheese icing though and pumpkin roll like i love that yeah, it, it is like that's the I don't like pumpkin except for in that application. Right. And yeah. and being from the pseudo south, I probably get my like southern card revoked from be like, oh, I don't like pumpkin pie. No, I don't. It's, it's, it's not a flavor for me, but a pumpkin roll, which is what this is, is absolutely the same way. Um, I was able to share some. I have a friend that works at a local liquor store um, and, you know, he's like, all right, I, I need a bottle of this now. Right. And whether he's going to see it in his store or not. Um, and you've touched on this, right? So you've got the Armida and the Seagrass, um, which are evergreen. Vantage is evergreen. Dovetail is evergreen. So a few changes to that. So Dovetail, Seagrass, and Vantage are going to be the evergreen skews. Armida, uh, we're not blending as often. So there might be a time when we're out of stock on Armida, but we're not blending it nearly as often as seagrass vantage and dovetail so Mm -hmm. seagrass being the finished dry dovetail being the finished whiskey and then vantage being the finished bourbon uh we didn't want to have vantage and armida kind of competing against each other so armida is not going to be gone forever you might see armida come out as one of those like releases that we're doing seasonally again i'm going to go back into the archives a little more um and you know I i was poking around on 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 your website and you still have listed it and, and maybe this is incorrect but the american vatted malt was listed as a continual release is that good is there going to be another american vatted malt or is that no uh, so our website needs a little bit of updating but 
the American Vatted Malt was, I mean, if you could find it, I liked it a lot. It was really interesting. I think we decided to pivot away from doing that because I don't know, uh, we wanted to focus on like developing some other ideas, but the vatted malt was a blend of all American single malts. Uh, we've released two different ones. The first one was like 1.5 to like eight year. And the second one was like, I guess like three to 10 year old American vatted malt, American single malts, but they were from like all over the country. So there was like New York, there's Texas, Wyoming. It, it had like this really cool like the second release was one of my favorite things we've come out with it had this like really cool banana bread like grain forward nose and the palette was really interesting but i'm not sure many people are gonna american single malts are challenging because you have people that drink scotch you have people that drink bourbon or american whiskey and like i don't know if the scotch drinkers are going to pick up an american single malt or the Mm -hmm. bourbon drinkers are going to pick up an american single malt like so yeah and it's and I think, and, and, and the last guest I had on, we talked almost exclusively about American single malt. And so that's why I sort of wanted to revisit this one is that I think that there's probably room for growth in that particular market in the United States, because there are a ton of scotch drinkers that might pick up an American single malt. Um, but starting off from a single distillery can be tough because a lot of them are very, very regional Right. And having an offering like this, that might be more national is a little bit simpler for people to get. And, you know, you know that there might be something to a market trend if you start seeing, you know, like, say, Jim Beam making a American single malt that they want to put into the marketplace. Right. If the, the big guys are doing it, it might be there. Um, and then one last one, the Infinite uh, series, is, is that continuing or is that done for? I don't like to say that we're going to be done forever because right. the, sometimes the, the tides will shift and like things will change. But right now we're not blending infinite barrel project again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I We had the idea of like doing it once a year and kind of like doing a yearly infinite barrel project. But I'm not sure that that is going to be something that's on the plan for next year. So I don't want to promise or say anything at, when it's not going to execute, but the infinite barrel project was an interesting concept too, because I didn't even know that infinity bottles exist, but because of that, I've had people at like events and stuff, bring me a little sample of their own Mm -hmm. barrels or bottles that they create at their own houses, which has, have been so interesting. I have like a regular uh, shout out to Perry, but he brought me one of his uh, like infinity bottles. that had like some barrel in it that had some Weller in it that had a bunch of other stuff in it too. So It's an interesting concept. I just think that some of those are all over the place. Like they had different dates on it. So we started with a few different whiskeys. We bottled it, put a date on it. You can go on the website, look at what was in that. We kept a little bit in the tank and then we layered in like five different new whiskeys in it in there. And they could be bourbon, rye, scotch, Irish whiskey, finished whiskey. There was like Polish rye in some of those, uh, And it was just, it got to the point where like we released, I don't know, maybe like the 30th release of it. There was like a million different whiskeys in there. So it was hard for me to even keep track of it, but you can go on the date on the bottle and then go Mm -hmm. online and find all the different component whiskeys that were in that blend, which was really interesting. Some of them had like this like peaty malty flavor profile. Some of them were a little bit like rounder. So you don't really know what you're going to get with those. Um, but yeah. that was a great entry point to the brand because it was a little bit less money than the normal stuff. So it was like, mm-hmm. I would say like $65, $70 on the shelf was the infinite barrel project. Um, we're releasing something in the fall this year or in some test markets. And then the beginning of next year, 
where it's going to be called Barrel Foundation, and it's going to be a an entry-level barrel product that's going to be coming out. So uh, keep an eye out for that, and then I'll give some more information as it comes. Absolutely. So in, you know, infinity bottles, I think there's, there's like two things that are going to probably mark whether you're like a, a super nerdy whiskey person or not. It's either you have an Excel spreadsheet of the bottles that you own or you have an infinity bottle. And if you have both, well, then you're probably listening to this because you're my people. Um, you know, I have a couple of infinity bottles back here that are just like, all right, people send me little samples and I'll drink half of it. And you can only drink so many of them. Then you start dumping them in and you're like, oh, now I've got a blend, but now it's an infinity blend because I drink out of it and put more in. There's an app. There's an app that can track, you know, the the volume, the, the, the proof that's in it. If you put in your volumes appropriately or whatever. Um, but you mentioned, so we have three that are going to be considered evergreen. You have Dovetail, Seagrass, Vantage. What, do you have a process for developing things that are going to be evergreen or do you test something out? And if it's popular, then you move it into an evergreen idea. I guess it's a little bit of both, right? Because Dovetail originated as like a one-off thing because we had mm -hmm. this partnership with Dunn for we, we didn't really have a partnership with Dunn at the time. We got some barrels from Dunn and did a project and came out with Dovetail eventually. It took about two years to create. And because it was so popular in the market and because it's actually Dovetail's like just really delicious whiskey, just good for, I get a lot of people that don't really drink cast strength whiskey to like Dovetail. And it's always like 122 to 125 proof. So it's not like a shy cash strength whiskey, it's up there. Mm -hmm. uh, so for people to not drink cash strength whiskey and like Dovetail is a testament to the blending team, but it's been popular. So it became an evergreen item before we even knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. We're blending a few different releases of it. And then we wanted to create, and then our Mita came out and the idea of our Mita was going to be like an evergreen item, but we wanted, our Mita was a, a bit divisive because it had uh, Sicilian Amaro, Jamaican rum, and pear brandy finish. And the bourbon purists out there will hate it, some of them. But a lot yeah. of on-premise, a lot of bartenders, I personally love Armida. Um, mm -hmm. They just didn't want a bourbon that had finishing on it as like a core bourbon. And then so we came out with Vantage. And so then we had Seagrass, Vantage, and Dovetail. But we do have Batch Bourbon, which is like an evergreen skew or like the Coralina, right. there's always going to be a batch bourbon in the market. We'll release two different batches a year. They're just blended to be different flavor profile wise. So those are your pure bourbons, not finished. Vantage is a blend of bourbon that's finished in three different virgin oak casts. So it is for people that want something that tastes like bourbon without finishing, it has flavors that we're pulling from the three different types of oak, but not a Sicilian Amaro or Jamaican rum finish. And that's what French Mizunara and what's the other American Oak toasted. toasted. That was it. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for anything that's French Oak period. Um, and anytime somebody mentions Mizunara, I want to try it because there's just not that much out there. Um, or at least not enough people that are doing it, at least in my opinion. Um, but I think it's a great way to introduce someone to something other than just standard oak, right? Toasted finishes have been around for a while, but they do add a really nice thing to it. But French oak is hitting, you know, a lot of places, Mizunara. Um, and like I said, it, it's probably between that and Dovetail are the two bottles that I have from Barrel that are like competing for the lowest level in the bottle that need replacement, right? And so I start, same thing. I mean, I hide them in the back. So that way I pleasantly surprise myself one day whenever I'm 
um, sort of digging through there. Um, Luckily, they're always available, so you can always buy another bottle of them and have it taste pretty similarly. Yeah, I'm hitting this crisis mode where, like, the more bottles that I continue to bring in the house, my my, my spouse starts looking at me like, "Hey, really?" You know. So um, I, I try to protect what I can. You know, like, there, there are bottles that I don't mind burning them down, uh, knowing that I'm not going to replace them, um, but some of them I don't. Um, and, and so you mentioned the batch bourbon, and this is something that I really do like. You know. There's not too many things that Barrel does that I don't like, but um, doing a batched bourbon is kind of bringing us into this conversation, at least for the you know traditional whiskey purists, that you're trying to introduce variability, right? Yes. You're literally, this is the batch for this part of the year, and this is the batch for that part of the year, um, and and they're different. And you know, part of the you know childhood baseball slash comic book collector in me is like, I want to have them all, right? Because you got to have them all so you can compare them to each other. Um, but it gives, at least in my opinion, it gives us something interesting to continue to try, right? Because you said it earlier is that bourbon can become one note. There is nuance to it. Like if you really spend some time with it, but having batch product that is specifically targeting that way is a unique perspective. Um, was that originally one of the ideas for barrel? Is that just something that's developed over time? So I think the original idea for barrel was that Joe wanted to, like create a brand and a and a bourbon. And I think maybe he thought that he wanted to have a, a distillery at one point, but quickly realized that the overhead to having a distillery was going to be like way more work and money than it was actually worth. And he went to Scotland and saw what they were doing and was inspired by that. And no one was really doing it at that time at the level of uh, blending for quality and bottling at cash strength and being like the preeminent independent bottler and blender. So he was really focused on like first developing like a, the brand identity of like being that. And he uh, worked with a team and blended the first batch 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. It was released in 2013, batch number one of bourbon. And they are specifically blended to all be different flavor profile wise. And I think that, I mean, that is 100% intentional. Uh, we wanted to do, I mean, batch bourbon releases can be anywhere from like, 2,500 to like 5,000 cases, depending on how many barrels we put blending together. So some batches are bigger than others. Um, the batches now are going to be, we're blending a little bit smaller of batches starting 36 next year. They're going to be probably around like 2,500 to 3,000 cases instead of like that 5,000 mark to make them truly allocated items. Um, but my favorite, I started the com at the company with batch 25 and my favorite, I have a, I always have a favorite batch. Like mm -hmm. and I keep waiting for a batch to like beat the last one, but like, I right. really love 29, like 29 was my favorite. We, we used weeded bourbon in that at that point. It was like a weeded Kentucky that was added to the Indiana, Kentucky and Tennessee blend. And I just really thought it was like really pretty. It came out like right before the summertime and I was going out and cold calling accounts with like cash strength whiskey. And I was like, Oh, it's really hot. And it's bourbon and it's 115 plus proof, but taste it. It's really elegant and floral and bright. And like people really loved 29, but all of the bourbons get different awards. We consistently get gold and double gold medal medals at San Francisco for the different batches, but it's something interesting. There's something in it for everyone. Everyone on the team has a different favorite of the batches. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and, and then, I mean, I assume you're, 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 you're holding back some quantity of batch 29 to continue to refer to, uh, because if you're not, 
I don't know that anything's ever going to beat the memory, right? Like you, it's yeah. hard to, to beat that memory, but you've, you've touched on it. And so, um, Beryl is celebrating its 10 year anniversary. Um, so you and I talked about this offline, but what, what are we, what, what are you guys doing unique for 10 years? So we released a 10 year anniversary blend of bourbon that we released online and then we'll have available at the Kentucky bourbon fest this week. Mm -hmm. uh, we sold out of the online in two hours. So it was there and then it's gone. Um, no, no markets are getting it. So you're not going to find it on the shelves. We made a little, such a little small amount of it. At, so you'll be able to taste it at the Kentucky bourbon fest if you do go, mm -hmm. uh, but 10 years is a long time. We have grown so much in the last 10 years, even the last like three years since I've been with the company, we have grown. Uh, we just bought a rec house this year. That was a historic rec house that was built in 1940 in Shively, Kentucky. That can, that the capacity is like, I think it's over 17,000 barrels that we can put. And it's going to change the game for us because we were keeping the barrels all over the country at different distilleries and rick houses that we had to like ship them every time we needed to use some of the stuff that was in them and mm -hmm. now we have access to something that's really close to us and we also just got a well we're opening a new facility this week uh i think the ribbon cutting is this week too it's a new yeah. blending facility it is still in louisville so uh probably like 20 minutes away from the old facility that we're still going to keep functioning because we need both at this point, but it is going to include eight blending tanks instead of two, uh, four, 6,000 gallon tanks and four, 8,000 gallon tanks. So very big. Yeah, that's, that's pretty significant. And I looked at the um, details, you know, I, I was, I was trying to find a, a picture to tease the idea that I was doing an interview today for social media and, you know, right about that time is when the email came in about the, the, the 10 year celebration whiskey. So I was like, all right, I'll use this picture and I'll, you know, put the link in and I'll send it up. Um, and, you know, regrettably, I didn't just immediately hop on and go buy one uh, because it was, and I, this is one thing that I, this is a, maybe one of the last things we may end up talking about um, is super reasonably priced for a, a, a celebration whiskey. And I didn't buy one. Now, luckily I'll be at the bourbon festival. So hopefully I can um, pull one out and bring it back with me because, you know, I've, I've, I've been a big fan of what you guys have done for a while. Um, one of, one of the things that you, you said earlier is that you transitioned here from, um, from maybe a more wine background. Um, and I, I have my own answer to this, but do you think that whiskey snobs and wine snobs are the same people that just found a different spirit to begin with? That they're the same people. Yeah, they're the same people that just found a different spirit to start with, right? Like if a wine snob had found whiskey first, they would be the exact same type of person. I don't know, because like at first, I guess you could stereotype every type of person, right? Like I, mm -hmm. you can fall into those traps, but what I find with both like whiskey snobs and wine snobs is that like we're inherently curious people. Right. We want to find different nuances and joys of life. Like we want... I don't know. My whole purpose of being on this planet, like we can say life is meaningless. Like, I don't know where we go after we die. Like I, I but I do know that I'd want to enjoy it while I'm here and I want to mm -hmm. enjoy it as much as possible and pull flavor. And, and I love food. I love wine. I love imbibing. Mm -hmm. I like, I just, I think that what whiskey and wine snobs definitely enjoy life in a way 
that is similar. I think that they are different, though, at the same breath. Mm -hmm. But there's both good and bad things about being a snob. Yeah, and I, and and I think the the thing that's maybe the the common thread for me is that whiskey snobs and wine snobs both think that they're right, right? And ultimately, yeah. they're no different than the the coffee snob or the pizza snob. Like we're all specifically attached to one thing, right? And and I say this because I feel like to some degree I'm a little bit of a coffee snob, a little bit of a whiskey snob, a little bit of a wine snob, um, because they're all just fantastic things. But you end up in camps sometimes, and people are like, oh, you know bourbon just beats you over the head. Wine is nuanced. And people are like, ah, oh, wine is weak. Whiskey has flavor. And it's all of these things. And um, they end up being the same people. It was just more of a, a flyer question than anything else. Yeah. I mean, if you want, it's just like dealing with a person that thinks they know everything. No one wants that. <laughs> no, no, no that's <laughs> those people are immediately going to, well, they, there's a lot of thoughts there, but that's, yeah. I want to I know a lot of things about a lot of things, but I don't want to know everything because that's, that's too much. No. Um, and you want to just be delighted. Like I just, mm -hmm. I just like being in this industry because I'm constantly delighted by something. I think barrel is a great brand for me to work for too, especially like with wine being my first love. But I think barrel constantly delights me like with all the new releases that come out, there's something delightful in there and life is too short. There's too much bad stuff going on in the world to not, allow yourself to be delighted sometimes i love changing someone's mind or like someone that's like oh you guys source and then they're like oh and they scoff at it and then they taste something and they're like oh actually this is fantastic <laughs> changing someone's mind is the best feeling yeah demolishing a preconceived notion can be great especially when it's one that does need to go away i like that be delighted i'm I'm gonna put this my notes are very crazy looking like they're not very linear um one of the things that i did notice right and so we're in this portion of um whiskey marketplace price growth right a lot of things are increasing in price um but the the 10-year release sorry the 10-year anniversary which is eight the whole bunch of stuff all the way up to like 18 years from eight years to 18 years, I think is what it was, or maybe 17 years um, is, is priced at that kind of magic number that everybody has in their brain of like, all right, $10 per year. And so if eight years is the youngest stuff in there, you're at, I think it was $84 is what it was on the website or something like that. Um, but the, the gray label series also had a price reduction. Like where does this come from in a world where all of whiskey is growing prices? You're uh, you guys are like, no, we're going to decrease the price. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if you are paying attention to the economy right now and, uh, but every, with a world of price increases, like we definitely are conscious that people are not spending as much money or have as much money to spend on like luxury items or goods. I mean, since COVID happened, I pe feel like people spent a lot of money on things that they could consume at home right now. Mm -hmm. My personally, my extra cash is going towards like saving money possibly to buy a house one day or maybe going on vacation and traveling. Like I'm not going to be spending more than like X amount of money on a bottle. And the juice in those whiskeys are, is fantastic. But we realized that that over $200 price point is something that personally for myself and for our consumer is not something that they're going to often kind of breach. And we kind of teased out this price point with a 
with a Reddit deal with our bourbon with that group mm -hmm. and launched uh, the gray label seagrass at that one fifty nine ninety nine price point. And we sold over 2000 bottles at that yeah. price point. So we just want these whiskeys to get into the hands of more consumers and have more access to to great whiskeys. Moving yeah. forward, we are going to be coming out with just one gray label and one gold label a year instead of like all three of them. But they're always they're still going to be at that one fifty nine ninety nine dollar price point. One seventy max is what we hope to see them on the shelves for. And that's that's fantastic. And, you know, it, it's from my perspective, greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, I had the ability to try some samples of gray labels from other folks. Um, and I didn't see them necessarily locally in my market because, like I said, I'm in very rural Western Kentucky. And so there's not I have to drive a little bit to see a wealth of variety on the shelf anywhere. But that was maybe largely most of the complaints of anybody I knew is like, these are fantastic. But I just I feel like I'm going to the Kentucky, to Kentucky Bourbon Festival and paying for my travel out of that. And then uh, in two weeks, I'm taking my kids to Disney. So you're right. Like we're spending money on trips right now. Yeah, um, that's that's where all of our money goes to. But bringing that into an attainable range, I mean, you've already proved it out that dropping it, you can move that many bottles that fast. And I think that's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a thing that I don't see anybody else doing. And, and I think that it probably deserves more attention maybe than it's getting, right? Is that everyone else is ramping their prices up and you guys pull back on what would be considered premium whiskey um, to make it more affordable to the consumer. Like that's, that's a story. That's like a good story. It's a good story, but people are with every good story. Someone's going to be angry someone that bought it at that $250 price point is going to be like, well, I bought it at this price point, but I can't tell you how many times I've bought in coats or clothing that I've watched drop in price like two months later and been like, mm -hmm. can I go back and get my money back for this? Like, no, I can't. So we'll see. And the thing is, like, and I would even challenge that because your coat is a reusable thing, right? But this is a consumable thing. And if you spent $250 on it and now it's at 170, that means you can buy another one and yeah. another one, right? Like you're dropping the price. Like if you thought it was a value at 250, then what do you think it is at 170 or 150 or 120 or whatever, you know, decreased price it happens to be, you know, I, I get it. Like, you know, and I spent more money. No, I'm like, now you can buy another one and, and yeah. feel okay about it. You can, you know, get close to buying two for maybe what you had to pay for one before. Like, this is, this is the correct movement. And maybe that's sort of some wrongheadedness, but you know, you, you touched on this and uh, this is going way, way back to the beginning. Um, you know, people were spending money differently during the pandemic. And that's when you came on board of a brand and you were trying to enable physical sales during the pandemic. Yeah. Like, what is that like? Like you, you've, you've gone from, you know, service industry into like physical sales in a time when it's maybe hard to get in the door in places because of travel restrictions or whatever else. Like, what is that like for you? Well, it was a, it was a very interesting time. I was having an existential crisis as probably a lot of people were at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I never saw myself like I mean, I never, if you look back on like in fifth grade, when people were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I never would have guessed I would be here, you know, right. even in, even in like the beginning of college, like before I started working in restaurants, I never would have guessed I was, would have been here, but COVID was exceptionally another point in my life where I never thought, like, I didn't know what was going to happen at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, but I knew that I couldn't stay home anymore. I was like, when I was unemployed, I was like, 
bike riding around my suburban like town in New Jersey. I would go like 20 miles a day sometimes. I would just like, I learned how to play the ukulele. I played Zelda Breath of the Wild for 250 hours. I was like, I need to do something. Like, so I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna put on a mask and let's say get out there. People like want stuff. And that's when restaurants were reopening for outdoor dining. So I was like wearing masks, serving people in the restaurant. Uh, It felt like I was a part of a community again because everyone was isolated for so long. And when I started selling things, I was just super grateful. And I was had this like energy of gratitude that I was able to work for this company that creates amazing whiskey. <laughs> like the whiskey itself speaks for itself. So all I had to do was like try to, to make appointments at liquor stores or like I would walk into liquor stores and drop my card or I would make like little 50 ml samples of stuff and drop them off for people that didn't want to taste with me at that point because of COVID restrictions. I would, mm-hmm. at one point I was like wearing two masks in the stores. I was just like, you know, hand sanitizer before, hand sanitizer after. Like we, it was a very interesting time. Like, but I was very happy to be out and about and like talking to people again and talking about something that I believed in and I felt passionate about after a few months of like not being able to do that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I think this is something that, you know, the, the, the societal study of the impact of the pandemic is going to be interesting. Like we're going to get to understand this in the next 20 years, how it impacts kids. You know, there's more kids that learned how to ride a bike in that, you know, six month to nine month window than ever before, because, there wasn't an ability to go out and go be, you know, be going to all these other things. And so they were staying home a lot. Um, but I think at least in, in, in you touched on this in, in the way that you kind of came out of it is that it took like human interaction was really, really cheap before the pandemic, right? Like it was super easy to, to have interaction with people and it was almost not really valued and whiskey, wine, coffee, a lot of these things are very communal spirits. Um, and so kind of coming out of that and saying, okay, like you have the ability to work in an industry that values community, right? Like that's, that's a big thing that's around whiskey, at least from what I've seen. Um, and now we have this higher price on human contact, right? Because we did not have it. We were forced to, to not have, you know, people were living in bubbles where you had the group of six people that you could be friends with and you, you know, made sure that you were safe for a three month window and you picked your groceries up, you know, people would put them in the back of your car and you would close the door and you wouldn't interact with the human being about all of it. Um, like the first place that I went whenever restrictions started lifting was to the liquor store to talk to the manager there. And he and I talked before, but like, then it became like, Hey, let's like have a real human interaction. Um, but it's, you know, it's trying to find a way in a brand new business after that situation is, is got to be tough, but also like, it sounds like you came out of it. It was the right thing. Like it was the thing that was supposed to hit you at that time. Yeah. I'm very grateful for that because then I just felt connected to human beings again. And we did a lot of stuff. Like we did a lot, maybe we didn't do in-store tastings for a while after that, mm-hmm. but we did do a lot of virtual tastings. Like I probably did at least 10 or so virtual tastings where we like would like make a little set for people at and leave it had 
met liquor stores or people could pick up their sets at a liquor store near them. And then we would do a virtual tasting for that liquor store of different stuff from barrel. It was like a fun time to pivot. There was a lot of creativity at the time. Mm -hmm. I almost have like nostalgia and like I miss that time in a weird way, which is sounds really bad. But I used to like play. We used to have a meeting every Friday. Me and my group of I think it was like 10 to 20 of us that would come on. It was like rotating group, but I was the one that started it. So I had a Zoom every week on Fridays and we would play like games on the Zoom. We would each mm -hmm. like do stupid games like Quiplash and like all this stuff. But we and I felt like we I saw them way more than I did in person. Yeah, was, I mean, you're, you're, you're not wrong. Like there is some degree of of uniqueness that came out of it because I had a lot of different like my company stayed our office and we were able to work remotely because I work in software. And so we, we worked remotely for a full year. We did not go back into the office until, you know, 18 months after the initial lockdown. And so there was a lot of like zoom fun time, you know, like cocktail hour or whatever. And and those things largely don't occur anymore. Um, you know, the first couple months back was a whole lot of people catching up on everybody's life. And you know, like there's whole children that were born during the time frame of the shutdown, because you know, you're, if you're shut down for a year, the math works out there or whatever. So it was, yeah, it was super interesting. It was, it was a weird time. It's a thing that we'll always kind of remember both fondly and terribly. You know, it's like any, any tough thing that you go through, you can remember it with fondness the farther you get away from it. Yeah. I just remember being like on a zoom with my friends. It was an engagement party zoom and it was the first time I made cat barrel cocktails mm -hmm. and I had pre-batched myself like two because we were on it for two hours. So I like pre-batched like two Manhattans and I had them and I just like stirred it and poured it. And I just remember drinking, like standing up from my chair after drinking two barrel cocktails and being like, Whoa, <laughs> I am way drunker than I thought it was. And that's how I learned cash strength. <laughs> what cash yeah. strength really meant. It, it can get there. I, I distinctly remember one call that we had that ended sometime around 3 a.m. It was supposed to close at midnight, but everybody was still hanging out. And nobody wanted to get off the call. And, um, you know, the, the next morning I still have children at that point, you know, like I've got kids. The next morning came super early because <laughs> I am not built for that kind of activity anymore. No, um, neither am I. You know, it's I'm all over for three days now, or like two to three days. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 multiple days, and I don't think you're old enough to experience that yet. But maybe it's just a um a byproduct of working in an industry where the goal is is to consume small quantities of poison over time. Like that's what we're doing, and it's yeah. super fun and interesting. Um, I know I have more questions, but I don't want to take too much more time from you. We're already at you know 57 ish minutes at this point. Um. I the new year series with man of I didn't talk about Stellum at all. Right. So, so there may be, may, I may need to reach out and we'll try to do this again sometime. Um, yeah. You have definitely. anything else, you know, where, where can we find you? What are links, any of that information that you want to share out? Uh, or maybe you don't, you're like, no, don't find me. <laughs> my personal Instagram is a private one. I like to keep, but you can definitely add me if you look up my name. Uh, but barrel at barrel bourbon is our Instagram tag with two L's. Always remember barrel is with two L's. Um, we're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. I think we're on, um, I guess it's called X now and not Twitter, yeah. but uh, we're on X. We're on Facebook. So find us on all those social media things. We do post weekly about all events that are coming that in the area that week. And we have brand development managers all over now. So there's, um, everyone has to do a certain amount of events per quarter. So there's always like multiple different events. You'll find us at different in-store tastings. If you're in Kentucky, we're at the Kentucky bourbon fest, go try a seagrass, seagrass 
slushy. Say that like 10 times fast, <laughs> but they're yeah, after the first one. You can't, it's impossible after you have the first one. I know that it was one of the biggest hits last year um, from all the people that I saw. Um, and then taking it a step further at the end of the month, you'll be at a local um, Western Kentucky uh, bourbon club event. So Barrel yes. will be specifically, maybe not you, but Barrel specifically will be at it. Uh, my uh, coworker Ned probably will be there, but he's amazing too. So uh, the team is awesome. Yeah. So whoever well, I appreciate meet, you, I appreciate hi. you hopping on and, and and giving me an hour of your day. Um, it's been great. We talked very little about the actual spirits you guys sent over, but uh, you know I, I can I can show you the the sample bottles you've got, and I can show you the other eight bottles that I bought on my own. So I'm already a huge fan. <laughs> um, appreciate the time. Of course. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. For sure. Thanks for tuning in for this offering from the Embellished Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using EmbellishPod, or you can give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, account, contact details, and more. Thanks for stopping by.